0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hey, Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wurundjeri land. After weeks of political chaos, the newly elected US speaker is a Republican conservative called Mike Johnson. Now, I had never heard of him before and it turns out a number of lawmakers who voted for him didn't know very much about him either. In this episode from The Guardian's Politics Weekly America podcast, we hear just how right-wing Johnson is and what his first week on the job tells us about how he could approach crucial government spending decisions. Here's host Jonathan Friedland.
2: Last week, in the space of just 24 hours, Mike Johnson of Louisiana went from relative unknown to Speaker of the US House of Representatives.
1: Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business.
2: Liz Cheney, the former Wyoming Republican congresswoman and one-time vice chair of the January the 6th committee, called Johnson dangerous over his role in trying to overturn the 2020 election.
3: You know, Mike is somebody who says that he's committed to defending the Constitution. Um, but but that's not what he did.
2: Speaker Johnson now faces the uphill tasks of both uniting a fractured Republican Party and preventing a fast-approaching government shutdown. So what have we learnt about his approach to the job from his first week in the chair?
1: The job of the Speaker of the House is to serve the whole body, and I will. But I've made a commitment to my colleagues here that this Speaker's office is going to be known for decentralising the power here.
2: Plus, as we prepare for next week's off-year elections, I'll be speaking later to my colleague Carter Sherman all about Virginia, the last remaining southern state without extensive restrictions on abortion. We look at why results there could prove pivotal for Republican chances in 2024. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America.
3: You know, I had heard his name floated, especially from far-right lawmakers, as someone who they liked because he is very conservative.
2: And- Mariana Sotomayor covers the House of Representatives for The Washington Post.
3: His own colleagues, House Republicans, said, I've barely had a conversation with him. I actually don't know where he stands on policy. Republicans were so fatigued after three weeks of trying and not being able to choose a speaker that when his name kind of started to float up, a lot of members were saying, why don't we just elect Johnson? Kind of almost an exasperation. He's nice. He's honest. He is someone who we all like. And yeah, he is pretty conservative, but, you know, maybe we can try and introduce ourselves and our positions to him and he will be open to reflecting the array of opinions in the Republican conference. So that is pretty much how all Republicans voted in support of Mike Johnson to become Speaker. Even Kevin McCarthy wasn't afforded that opportunity earlier this year.
2: And, and your point about the weariness, I, I really get that. And at that point, it almost becomes just having the absence of negatives rather than a whole lot of positives. Just the fact that people don't hate you um, was maybe enough to get him across the line. But as you say, people didn't really know much about him. But fill us in of who this man is, what he stands for, what, you know, what positions, what camp he belongs to, and who perhaps, as they get to know more about him, doesn't like him.
3: Sure. So Mike Johnson is relatively new on Capitol Hill. He was elected during the 2016 election and basically since then has become a supporter and follower of former President Donald Trump. He is extremely conservative. And by that, I mean, he is very religious.
1: I don't believe there are any coincidences in a matter like this. I believe that scripture, the Bible, is very clear. That that God is the one that raises up those in authority. He raised up each of you, all of us.
3: Because he is this very faithful man, he usually in meetings starts in prayer and, and makes all his other colleagues also kind of bow their heads in prayer. It brings more of a stubbornness to policy because of that belief, but it also brings a bit of that personality, this kind, congenial, someone who just wants to listen is something that I've heard We haven't necessarily seen him at any point in time be a leader on policy. So we will very quickly find out how he ends up listening to all of these different viewpoints that exist in the Republican conference that we saw come to a head during the speakership fight. How does he take that in and then ultimately make decisions? And one of the criticisms that I'm hearing from a number of Republican lawmakers, including the most vulnerable Republicans, is. They are now just realizing how conservative he is. Even before he was in the House, he served as a lawyer who essentially argued to criminalize homosexuality. It is a position that he has held, introducing a number of bills against the LGBTQ plus community.
1: It's time for an honest conversation about homosexuality. There's freedom to change if you want to.
3: In the number of years he's been on Capitol Hill. He's also very staunchly against abortion of any kind. He doesn't want to see any limits put in place. And of course, that is a hotly debated issue right now. And a lot of these vulnerable Republicans saying, man, because we were so fatigued, because we were so tired, because we just wanted to get this over with, none of us were doing our research. We don't know what to expect from this guy.
2: Yeah, I mean, because f- you can spend a few moments with Google and you do get a sense of him. He said he's a big fan of 18th century values. You know, if you're into the 19th century, that makes you too moderate. He's going back to the 18th century. And he said, we're going to be talking later on in the podcast with Carter Sherman and, and about Virginia and abortion. But on that issue, he said after the Roe v. Wade protection of abortion rights was overturned, he tweeted, perform an abortion and get imprisoned at hard labor for one to 10 years and fine 10, thousand to a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, the idea of hard labor for doctors who perform abortions. And as you mentioned on LGBTQ plus right saying your race, creed, and sex are what you are, while homosexuality and cross-dressing are things you do. This is a free country, but we don't give special protections for every person's bizarre choices. I mean, if you're telling us that colleagues had to uh, re- really find, start, you know, going onto Wikipedia, have a look to see who this guy is, is there any chance that the more they get to know of him and his positions, he's also, I mean, I would say a climate change denier, let alone skeptic, um, that there's any chance that he might go the way of Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and Tom Emmer and they'll move against him because the other speakers have had a pretty short shelf life?
3: Yeah, it's very interesting because, to your point, he, at least politically, has voted the same way that McCarthy has and that Jim Jordan has. But, as you mentioned, neither Jim Jordan or McCarthy has spoken in such terms on these already controversial issues. And really, at this point in time, we're all going to be finding out just how long uh, Johnson survives. And the reason why is because he's going to have to make a lot of decisions in a short amount of time. The first one is going to be having to send supplemental aid to Israel. New House Speaker Mike Johnson says aid to Israel will be considered on the
0: House floor this week. The catch? It will be a standalone measure. That's despite President Biden's call for Congress to provide a broader package that also includes aid to Ukraine.
3: That's already becoming a controversial position. And in the 48 hours that that bill has been out, obviously he has to fund the government.
1: Last month, he voted against a deal cut with Democrats to keep the government open. Now Johnson faces a November 17th deadline to again avoid a shutdown.
3: And there's also a number of other bills that Republicans and Democrats haven't even been able to talk about that they need to get done before the end of the year. You know, to your question of just how long he survives, it's really going to come down to how does he work with the Senate? Because House Republicans under McCarthy adopted this position that, okay, we know that our bills are not going to become law. We wish they did. They're not going to. So let's pass the most conservative version possible to the Senate. They're obviously going to reject it but they'll send back their version. And at some point, we're gonna have to go in conference and negotiate between both chambers. And if we go in with the most conservative footing, that means, yeah, sure, we're not gonna get everything, but we'll still end up with a reasonably conservative bill that will go and be on the president's desk.
2: And there's an example of that almost coming because of the uh, bill you mentioned on aid, extra aid for Israel. As you and I speak, that's set to come to the floor of the House that could be an example of something which is very hardcore coming out of the house but then gets diluted at the senate but just tell us what he's planning to do on this bill that as again as i say as you and i speak is is set to come to the floor
3: so johnson's first Proposal of legislation was this Israel supplemental, and it only addresses sending money to Israel. You know, the administration feels very strongly uh, that the supplemental package that was sent up to Congress
4: is the one that they would like to see Congress pass. They really don't want to split off funding where, you know, Israel is standalone, Ukraine gets handled separately. They want to keep everything together.
3: Uh, Republicans have differing views on this. And on top of that, He's trying to cross off a request from Republicans, something that we've heard all year since they've been in the majority, which is we need to cut spending. So what he's proposed is, okay, we'll send 14 billion dollars to Israel, but we need to cut it from the IRS.
2: That's the Internal Revenue Service, which collects Americans' taxes.
3: Correct. To make it pretty short, House Democrats, two years ago, passed this very big bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. And in it, they allotted $80 billion to go towards the IRS, essentially to hire a number of employees Because there's just a backlog of trying to process a number of audits and Republicans during the midterm election essentially turned this into a big falsehood and said these IRS armed agents are going to come knocking on your door. They're going to go into your homes and take your money. Democrats, the big government is gonna come after you. So this has become a Republican talking point.
0: And the new Republican-led House, they used their first vote to claw back some $70 billion in new funding for the IRS.
3: As many Republicans have said, this is the lowest hanging fruit to just pull from and say, all right, in exchange for us allotting more money, take it away from the IRS. Republicans describing it as this offset, but it really isn't actually removing this amount of money that Democrats were able to pass through when they had the majority actually reduces the deficit. Removing it would only continue to add to the deficit. So we're in this very weird political uh, square with Republicans and, and people have told the speaker, hey, this isn't do anything. This isn't actually cut spending. And he keeps saying, no, It does. It does. It does.
2: The big thing that's looming for uh, Speaker Johnson is this funding of the government. The deadline is less than three weeks away. Uh, people from outside the United States might, may not know, but that's how it works that the budget has to be, or the cash has to be sort of renewed uh, each time, and there's a deadline. And Republicans often don't like doing that because they think it just encourages a government to spend too much money. It's always a very difficult thing for a Republican speaker to handle because, on the one hand, they've got ideologues who think you should starve the government of cash, and you've got others who are saying, If we shut down the government, then we become extremely unpopular because people need the government for, you know, benefit checks and so on. How do you think, from what you've seen so far, Mike Johnson is going to handle this? And do you think he has the chops, the ability to save the government from yet another shutdown?
3: So before he was elected, he kind of wrote this letter to colleagues saying, this is my position on government funding. And honestly, it mirrors a lot of what McCarthy was trying to do. And by that, I mean, try to in the next couple of weeks pass as many of the 12 appropriation bills that fund each department in the government and federal government pass that. And yeah, we're going to run up against the November seventeenth deadline. So why don't we extend until January, mid January, current government funding levels. So when McCarthy tried to do that, as we recall, he got voted out of office. And the reason why, at the time, far-right Republicans were saying we didn't want to fund the government for a short short term. And also, wow, you relied on Democratic votes to pass this short-term extension that prevented a government shutdown, which McCarthy at the time said, you know what? Government shutdowns are the worst. We don't want that. Americans don't want that. I don't care who helped me. And then he was ousted the following Monday. So, It's interesting now because those same far-right lawmakers, now they're out here saying, oh, it's fine. Yes, let's just fund the government till January. That'll give us a couple more weeks to pass all of the appropriation bills that fund the government for the full year. Sure, let's do it. It seems like we may be able to avoid a government shutdown. We'll we'll see. But it doesn't seem like Johnson's going to get ousted for doing exactly what McCarthy did a couple weeks ago.
2: We always do, Marianne, as you know, uh, like to ask a what else question. And before we uh, leave Congress and head over to Virginia to talk with Carter Sherman, I did want to ask you about uh, another member of the House of Representatives. He's the House Democrat, Dean Phillips, another person who had people reaching for their phones to Google, uh, who has decided uh, to take on... Joe Biden, for the Democratic nomination for president, announced himself a little video showing him in New Hampshire, he's running. I think President Biden has done a spectacular job for our country. But it's not about the past. This is an election about the future. Most people think he's doing that really to draw attention to or tap into that feeling among some Democrats. That Joe Biden is too old to seek a second term. What do you make of it? I mean, I'm sure you've you know come across Dean Phillips in the corridors there on Capitol Hill. You know what's he like, and how do you rate his chances of making even a dent in the Democratic uh, side of things?
3: I think he is not going to be able to make a dent at all. It's been fascinating to see him kind of flirt with the decision of running for president, and now doing it because there have been so many House Democrats, so many politicians from his Minnesota delegation and, and, and state delegation telling him, don't do this. They've, I mean, they've already put out statements being like, we're gonna support Joe Biden. We're not gonna support Dean Phillips for what he's doing. And here's the thing, Dean Phillips has been around for only several years. He was elected during that big democratic wave in 2018. He was always seen as a rising star, but he was also seen as someone who always had bigger ambitions everyone. It was almost a joke because we knew that if there was any kind of position open for the Senate or for president, he was going to try and do that. So it it wasn't a surprise. It's just badly calculated. There's just momentum behind Biden. Sure, there's questions about his age and, and different opinions on the global stage and what he's doing domestically. Sure. But Democrats are expected to fall in line behind him. They've more or less said that. So I mean, if there's any indicator of how Dean Phillips' campaign's going, one of my colleagues was at his first event in New Hampshire and said it was extremely small. There were not that many people there. And of the people who were sitting in the seats, a lot of them were from his own campaign staff. So it doesn't look like a very promising start for Phillips.
2: I heard someone joke that at his launch there were very, very few people who weren't paid to be there, meaning either aides to him or uh, journalists there to cover it. Actual real people, uh, not so much. Um, Mariana Sotomayor, thank you so much for talking to me for Politics Weekly American.
3: Of course. Happy to be here.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
3: With the price of just
1: about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Now, normally that would be that for this week's episode, but we wanted to do something a bit different and catch up with Carter Sherman, my colleague in the US, who's covering reproductive rights and justice. She recently took a trip to Virginia.
4: Basically, Virginia is the only southern state to have not significantly restricted abortion access since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And that means that for people in the South who are fleeing abortion bans, their next closest stop is often Virginia.
2: While most are focused on 2024, next Tuesday voters in several states will head to the polls to vote in local state and in one case, federal elections. And Virginia could throw up some important results.
4: Now, Virginia, as you said, is on the verge of having an election that could threaten that status as an abortion sanctuary. And I wanted to see what that would mean for... The people, the providers, the patients, who all at this point really rely on Virginia for abortion access.
2: And so people know that the crucial Roe v. Wade judgment of the Supreme Court was overturned in the Dobbs decision last year, and it threw the decision on, on abortion rights to the states. So it's the states who now get to make these decisions. And therefore, the different state bodies that make decisions are suddenly crucial. Just explain for us the makeup of the legislature in Virginia and what could actually end up happening next week.
4: The Virginia state government is divided. The Democrats hold the state Senate and the Republicans hold the House of Delegates. The Republicans also hold the governor's mansion in the form of Governor Glenn Youngkin. Now, if Republicans retake the state Senate, then they will have next to no guardrails on what they want to do around abortion access. And they've already made it very clear that they would be interested in limiting access to the procedure.
2: And this is interesting, you mentioned Glenn Youngkin, some people, we've talked about him on the podcast before, because people have wondered about him as a potential presidential candidate in 2024. And some like him as an alternative to Trump, because they think he could have Crossover appeal. Virginia, famously a purple state, where it can swing between the two, and he's managed to uh, win over moderates and uh, and so on. Given all that, it, it well, it partly surprises me. I think it might surprise other people listening to this to think that Virginia, often you know, moderates are important there, would want to go down this road and harden up the position on abortion and deny abortion rights. So, tell me the politics of that calculation and and what legislation we're likely to see if they do indeed decide to get tough uh, on abortion rights?
4: I think for Republicans, abortion has become a major issue that they're not really sure how to message on. We saw in the 2022 midterms that abortion really led Republicans to underperform in areas where it was thought that they would take back a bunch of seats in the US House. And so in Virginia, what we're really seeing is Republicans trying to find a way to frame themselves as offering a reasonable compromise on this issue. Basically, Americans broadly really support abortion rights. If you ask them in polls, do you like abortion rights? Do you wish that the U.S. Supreme Court had kept Roe v. Wade? They will say yes. But if you start to drill down and ask them, "Okay, do you support abortion at this point in pregnancy? Do you support abortion at that point in pregnancy? it becomes clear that a lot of people are not so in favor of abortion past the first trimester of pregnancy. Now, in Virginia, Republicans have taken that and said, okay, well, what we would like to pass is a 15-week limit. That would essentially be a ban on abortion past 15 weeks, with some exceptions for rape and incest and medical emergencies. I do think it's important to note here, though, that Doctors say that these medical emergency exceptions are not really workable in practice. They're often too vague or politicized in ways that don't really map onto the intricacies of medicine and pregnancy. So Glenn Youngkin has been very forthright about the fact that a 15-week limit, as he puts it, would be the centerpiece of his campaign and his pitch to retake the Virginia State Senate.
1: Reminded Virginians that uh, I I am a pro-life
2: governor and and I do believe in exceptions in the case of rape and incest and when a mother's life is in jeopardy. And uh, I believe that a place Virginians could could come together was around a 15-week bill to protect life at 15 weeks. And, And in a way, you can see that he would think that still fits with the sort of brand that he is constructing that Virginia Republicans would like. So you wanted to get a sense of how this change... Would impact women in Virginia, those seeking an abortion, also the clinics that provide them. So, just tell us where you went.
1: I an
4: hey, I'm Carter Sherman. I'm with The Guardian. All right, go
2: ahead. Push
4: on the door. I went to Charlottesville, which is a college town in the smack dab middle of Virginia. If you're familiar with the University of Virginia, that's in Charlottesville. And I specifically went there because I wanted to spend time at this clinic run by an organization known as Whole Woman's Health.
0: Hi, hey,
1: how are you? Hey, how are you? Hello. Hello. Nice to find you
0: Whole
4: Woman's Health operates clinics across the country, and they used to be really known for their work in Texas. Obviously, they do not operate abortion clinics in Texas anymore because Texas has banned abortion. But... The Virginia clinic is now a place where they're seeing a lot of Texans, where they're seeing a lot of other southerners who are, as I said earlier, fleeing abortion bans. You know, I think a lot of people think of a lot of screaming and shouting at abortion clinics. This was not that. There were a few protesters there. They left after a few hours. And it was generally just people sort of bustling in and around the clinic all day trying to quietly and quickly get people through their procedures.
2: You mentioned that uh, abortion rights have been denied to women in Texas and therefore uh, uh, people from that state, and I'm guessing across the South now, are heading to those places where, they, where an abortion is still uh, legal. You know, therefore in Virginia and places like the clinic you visited, there will be people coming from a long way away to undertake this procedure. You actually spoke, I think, to one couple who had made an eight-hour journey to uh, the clinic you visited. Just tell us their story. How'd you
4: meet? On the school boys. On the school boys. And that was in 2016. This couple came from Georgia. They were both in their early 20s. They already had one child together. And Georgia has banned abortion past about six weeks of pregnancy. Now, when this woman discovered that she was pregnant, she was already further along in her pregnancy than six weeks, so she couldn't get an abortion in Georgia. We took some time to figure out what we wanted to do next, what was best for our situation. They basically came to the conclusion that it was not financially feasible for them to have another child at this point, and so this couple decided to go to North Carolina.
1: Set an appointment that was on October 2nd, and when we went out there, we're like well you know
4: you're measuring over our legal um, termination period so you have to go somewhere else now north carolina as of this summer has banned abortion past 12 weeks of pregnancy and by the time they got to north carolina she was too late to get an abortion there so they had to go back to georgia recalibrate figure out what they wanted to do and then that is how they ended up in virginia
1: because we wouldn't be able to stay afloat we um, wouldn't be able to take care of our same child as properly as we did with our first, So that's what got us
4: here today. I think it's important to know that before Roe, most abortions occurred within the first trimester of pregnancy. But since Roe fell, a lot of providers have been telling me that they are seeing people who are later on in their pregnancies because people cannot get abortions quickly. By the time that this woman actually made it to the Virginia Clinic, she was 14 weeks along. so. If she had waited a few more days and if the election had already come to pass, she might not have been able to get an abortion in Virginia.
2: And all of this underlines the fact that Virginia is now the only state in the South, the only southern state that hasn't in some way restricted abortion rights after that um, Dobbs decision. And so uh, it's become this kind of oasis or this sole place that people can go to and uh, as you've just explained there that has had this sort of unforeseen i suppose by some people consequence of mean meaning there are more later abortions uh, you while you were there you spoke to the founder of that organization whole woman's health uh, tell us about her but also what what is her fears for where this whole story goes next
4: i started in the field of abortion care a long time ago like it was my first job out of college Yeah, I spoke to Amy Hackstrom Miller, who is the CEO and founder of Whole Women's Health. I think Virginia is oftentimes
0: looked at as a beacon also or as like a um, sort of a barometer for national elections because our elections happen first, you know. And so I think, um, you know,
4: lots of eyes are on Virginia for, for numerous reasons. And her fear is that if Republicans take back the state legislature, they're not going to stop at 15 weeks And there are a lot of people who agree with her. There's polling that shows that people do not trust Republicans to stop at 15 weeks. And I think that fear is in part based on the Dobbs decision, actually, which was about a 15-week abortion ban out of Mississippi, but obviously did not ultimately lead to a 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi. It led to a total ban in Mississippi, and it led to bans across the South. And so people really think that an abortion ban is a slippery slope. And once you start to ban abortion, when does it stop?
2: And uh, I know in your conversation with Amy Hagstrom Miller, she also talked about the fact that they do have an ambitious governor in Glen Yunkin.
4: I feel like Yunkin is running for national
1: office from this pulpit in, in Virginia.
2: Virginia famously has term limits, so governors only ever serve one term. And this week in uh, The Guardian, our colleague David Smith wrote about murmurs and rumours that Youngkin could be quite a sort of serious challenger to Donald Trump. I mean, that he has some strengths that the other Republican candidates Don't uh, we speak as Mike Pence, who was hoping to get some slice of the evangelical vote and had a very, very hard line on the abortion issue. Mike Pence has now dropped out of the race, the former vice president, no longer seeking the Republican nomination. If if Junkin is to go uh, have a future, I mean, not even necessarily in 2024, but even afterwards, he needs next Tuesday's elections to go his way.
4: It's a real test of his power and his popularity. Can he make a message for the Republican Party that says, here's a version of Trumpism that does not involve Trump? Because Trump obviously comes with a lot of baggage, but he is the frontrunner right now in the presidential race. And I think that makes a lot of Republicans nervous. I think they're looking for any kind of other option for their party. And if Youngkin can pull out a win for his party next week, then I think he's got a really strong argument for himself.
2: Yeah, he's got to be quick. Some of these deadlines are already passing to get on the ballot in some of those states. But, you know, he uh, there is still that talk around him. So we'll, we'll be definitely watching those Virginia results as a kind of tell for his future and how Republicans are faring, especially when abortion is the big issue, whether it's explicitly on the ballot or not, which actually takes us to where you're going to be in, on Election Day, which I, is not Virginia. You're going to be in Ohio where reproductive rights are actually explicitly uh, on the ballot.
4: In November, Ohio will have a ballot measure to enshrine abortion protections in the state constitution, which, according to a recent poll, nearly 58 percent of voters there support.
2: How much of an impact do you think the results of these so-called off-year elections, where abortion is is in the mix, either explicitly on the ballot paper or not, how much uh, influence do you think that these results are going to have on how republicans choose to message choose to campaign in november 2024
4: i think it's huge i think republicans are clearly scrambling for a message and they're desperate for any kind of evidence of something that will work and that's what we're going to see in virginia does a 15 week limit work for people limit quote unquote and Can Republicans then take that policy and maybe export it to their own races? Anti-abortion activists are pushing for a national 15-week ban, and so they would very much like to see this 15-week messaging work in Virginia. In Ohio, I think what we're going to see is a test of how sustained the outrage will be over Roe v. Wade. There were several uh, abortion-related referendums on the ballot last year in the 2022 midterms, and abortion rights supporters won all of them. But that was only a few months after the overturning of Roe. So can people sustain that outrage and win again on abortion rights in Ohio this year? And if they do that, what lessons can they take from this race in order to keep people upset and angry about abortion next year? There are going to be several states that it looks like will be having abortion-related ballot referendums next year. And all of the people who are working on those races are very closely watching Ohio.
2: Yeah, I think Democrats are going to be sort of obsessed by this because they've been thinking that, okay, they've got a problem with Joe Biden seeming for many voters just too old for the job. But what they have to count on is that strong outrage and anger, particularly among women voters, about the abortion issue. As you say, it won them a lot of contests in 2022, a referendum in Kansas that no one would have expected them to win. And it's a a sort of a million dollar question for the Democrats' hopes in 2024, whether it still can power and fuel big Democratic turnout for them uh, a year from now. So, Carter Sherman, thanks so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America.
1: Thank you. That was Jonathan Friedland speaking with Guardian US's reproductive health and justice reporter Carter Sherman. Earlier, you also heard from Mariana Sotomayor of The Washington Post. This episode was produced by Daniel Stevens. The executive producer was Maz Eptahaj. Additional production by Alison Chan. I'm Jane Lee, and we'll be back with a regular episode of Full Story for you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.